back and a back that's strong. You load 16 tons. What do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. That was Ernie Ford's classic song, 16 Tons. The song is a ballad of the poor coal miner who, despite shoveling coal all day, still finds himself in debt. In the chorus, the miner mentions that he's a slave to the company store. If you don't know, in coal mining towns, the company store ruled virtually all commerce, meaning your pay, often paid out in company currency called scrip, went right back to your employer. It's a song fitting for the subject we're going to talk about today, which is the cycle of debt. I appreciate you being patient since the last podcast, too. Since we finished up Angel Fire, I just finished the first draft of a book about fundraising, which, as I've mentioned, is my day job. It's a cynical look at the development profession called, well, this is the code name anyway, Occult Fundraising, the one-man development office. If you happen to listen to the podcast and you're in the industry, I'd love to send you a copy to read. Write me at tinderboxpodcast at gmail.com, tinderboxpodcast at gmail.com. I am checking that right now. Sorry to James S. who wrote me at the aforementioned email address, and it took me quite a long time to respond because I apparently don't know how to do email forwarding. In addition, I've been doing my research on the uh, Nation of Islam and the conflict with the FBI. However, that is going much slower than I thought. And so as a result, I wanted to give you guys something uh, to chew on here and go into a subject I've been thinking about quite a bit. So it's November of 2020, and we're going to get topical for a moment, especially with the dreaded U.S. presidential election in the background in the rearview mirror. Well, maybe. There's a lot of lawsuits out there. There's celebrations and anger louder than most reasonable conversations, but I'm going to stay out of partisanship. I'm going to try not to be partisan. The purpose of this podcast was for me to write out an idea that's been bouncing around in my head for years. Namely, how does representation in government work when debt gets involved? And how does a nation or an empire's debt build? And how can you possibly resolve that debt when it gets too high? You're going to hear me mention the lately departed anthropologist David Graeber, who wrote a book called Debt, the First 5,000 Years. It's a book that probably changed my intellectual life. Around the time this celebrated book was released, I was enrolled in a continental philosophy PhD program at a major liberal arts university. When I brought up my enthusiasm for this awesome book by Graeber, my professor remarked with a hint of disgust that Graeber's book was written for a popular audience. Oh, no. Not a popular audience. I think you heard the sarcasm. That is, my professors sneered at Graeber's book because it wasn't an academic tome. It hit the New York Times bestseller list, I think, and plebes had read it. I guess my philosophy program would rather I used academic work in my academic work, read by, you know, 50 people in the country. God forbid the humanities make themselves useful or popular. Anyway, Bygones are bygones. I never did get that philosophy PhD, and I've gone on to work on in nonprofits uh, for good or ill, hopefully more good than bad. Sadly, David Graeber died this year, in September of 2020, at age 59, too young. Having talked to him once and read a lot of his work over the years, his death hit me like the loss of a friend. So this piece is kind of a eulogy to David and his work on debt. Rest in peace, David Graeber. A few hundred years ago, A few whacked-out radicals dressed as Native Americans threw tea into a harbor. These Bostonians protested that they did not receive representation despite being taxed. 
no taxation without representation. They were correct. As colonists of the New World, these early Americans didn't receive representation from the British Empire. The Empire levied taxes on the colonials, whether they liked it or not, and they did not. It took a little skirmish, you could call the Revolutionary War, for the colonials to get their way. In the end, these intrepid troublemakers had to form their own government to figure out taxation and representation and the problems associated with those things. It actually didn't go well at first. Shays' rebellion showed the fragility of the new republic, and James Madison saw it necessary to push hard for a more formal federal government to unite the states. Centuries later, Americans find themselves in a situation where they're taxed and represented, but elected representatives don't seem to answer to them anymore. I'm going to argue in this podcast that elected representatives now answer increasingly to debt holders and not the American people. In this piece, I'm going to explain why government debt is a representational problem, who those debt holders might be, and why the average American feels more and more frustrated by politics they recycle. It's my opinion that this problem in representation arises out of an American empire in great crisis, great crisis, an empire whose actions are based around sound philosophy but bad practice. Calling the United States the most powerful country in the world is a category error. Yes, you've made a mistake just thinking of the USA as a country. Apologies to my international audience, I know you're out there, but my country's exceptionalism exists as much as you might not like the idea of it. To the extent that the United States is a sovereign nation, it's also the prime mover of a global hegemonic empire. I use the word hegemonic to mean predominant. The United States is the superlative power on the globe. If aliens were to park in orbit and use their scanners and telescopes and maybe a few abductions of farmers or teenagers to try and identify the power structures on Earth, it would not take long for them to identify the United States as the preeminent power on the planet. No other country can project force like the United States. The military occupies every theater of war from sea to space with overwhelming superiority in technology and firepower. Challengers exist, I know, they're out there. Some argue that Russia has an edge in artillery technology. China has been trying to close the gap on technology in air and space superiority and has cyber tools that are pretty effective. But China and Russia are still a far cry from the military power of my country, the United States. Russia's population, and I mean their entire population, is falling, right? There's less of them. They're expecting to lose a million people in the next four years. The United States is expected to grow. China has an air force a third of the size of the United States, and their military budget sits at about a third of ours as well. Nobody compares. Kinetic power doesn't even consider the far more important intelligence apparatus of the United States military's power. Intelligence agencies stop wars before they start. The stakes are too high with nuclear weapons, hence the importance of subterfuge, wet work, and clandestine operations. For instance, there is no reason to think that the many agencies of the intelligence apparatus don't have a record of the entire internet moment to moment. Don't you feel proud being reported that way? China boasts that it has control over all of its internet infrastructure. I'm not sure that we, the United States, isn't monitoring all of that all the time either. I'd actually love to know what the intelligence community does all day. It seems to me that the dual COVID-19 health and economic crises are immense national security threats, but I haven't heard a peep from the intelligence community about it. In any case, the intelligence apparatus breathes information like air, and nobody else's intelligence services can compare to them. Don't get it twisted, though. This isn't empire just for empire's sake. 
American Empire preserves a particular form of American global commerce. It's called Pax Americana, or the American Peace, enforced since the Second World War. We live on a planet ruled by American government, language, and mercantile custom. Across the planet, the dollar acts as the preeminent reserve currency. Oil, the black blood of the global economy, trades in petrodollars. The globe's lingua franca is American English, and lingua franca being the, the language of commerce, it's American English. It's, it's the English that I speak. A McDonald's franchise, a symbol of American soft power, has a picture-perfect view of the pyramids of Giza. I, I've seen it firsthand. You get it. And I point all this out to establish for you that the United States enforces a global empire full of soft and hard power at great cost. Anyone casually familiar with the politics of the United States knows that the force projection, intelligence gathering, general activity of that empire costs a tremendous amount of money. In fiscal year 20, the United States government brought in $3.7 trillion in revenue and spent $4.8 trillion. All right. Before you start losing with the numbers, I understand. I'm someone who studied philosophy, so I'm not really great at math. So let's call that, let's round it, right? Let's call that $4 trillion and $5 trillion. Okay, we brought in $4 trillion, we spent $5 trillion. That left a financed or borrowed deficit last year, fiscal year 2020, of a trillion dollars, right? That's 5 minus 4 equals 1. So that $1 trillion gets covered by the credit card, the national credit card. Of that $4 trillion in revenue, personal income taxes, the ones that you pay, covered just a third. Think about it for a moment. Where, when it comes to what gets taken out of your paycheck or paid out quarterly or however you do your taxes or if you even pay taxes, I don't know. We've got a lot of libertarians on there on, on the uh, Tenderbox podcast listenership. I don't know if you guys pay taxes. Our paychecks cover less than $2 of the $5 we spent and $2 trillion of the $5 trillion spent in fiscal year 2020. Even more astounding is that we know roughly 50% of Americans pay an effective income tax of 0%, meaning only a fraction of Americans are paying income taxes at all and they're paying a majority of it. You'll find citations for these figures in the show notes. I'll you know, if you're really into those numbers, I can I can get them for you. The fact is that a minority of Americans pay most of the taxes and the taxes do not cover the bills. Now, there are other taxes, estate, corporate, you know, whatever tariffs, they all cover the rest of the revenue. But all the blood that the federal government squeezes out of the rock just doesn't cover the spending we have. And it hasn't for a long time. There's a shortfall year after year, no matter what administration says it's going to balance the budget. Fiscal year 2020's boost in spending largely went to military force projection, all that stuff we just mentioned. Fighting insurgents in the desert isn't cheap, neither is a satellite network watching everything you do. This is all expensive stuff. I remember back in 2003 or 2004, I was a reporter for my college newspaper, and we had a speaker come by. He was involved in some kind of speaker series that I've forgotten the name of. I mean, it's been a long time. My beat was listening to these lectures in the speaker series and reporting back. It was thrilling stuff. I don't remember any of them, but I remember the one from that day. I got to see Frank Chuck Spinney talk. So he usually goes by Chuck. So Chuck worked for the Pentagon as an analyst and has spent a lot of his retirement telling everyone, and every I do mean everyone, college students, papers, YouTube, how unsustainable the Pentagon budget has gotten. His lecture, which I wrote up for the paper, is almost 20 years old now. I'm getting old. But 
The spending and debt that Chuck was waving his arms about has only increased. Chuck Spenny's a, a real patriot, and if you like the math of federal debt, he's your guy. If you want to know about how the Pentagon spends money, he knows it back and forth. He said that we had a runaway spending problem in the imperial upkeep of this empire, and we had to control it or we would face the consequences. This year, though, the 2020 fiscal year 2020's budget, the military spending to protect Pax Americana looks like chump change. Yes, this year, thanks to COVID-19, the federal government added $2 trillion more in spending to what it would have been a normal budget year. So let's call that $7 spent this year with only $4 to cover it. Yikes, that's doubling. That's tripling. How are we going to pay for this? Well, taxes, right? We can up taxes? Yeah, I don't think so. Taxes aren't going up. We'll talk a little bit about taxes in a minute. We got to go back to that credit card. Necessary spending. We can't rely on a sliver of the taxpaying population to pay all the bills. We need to borrow. It's through debt financing that we can afford all the shiny things like expensive COVID-19 relief bills and space-age military technology. Debt financing is a more complicated subject than I kind of want to handle in here. Others who are good at finance can get into the details. Please do. Actually, send me, send me details because it's an extremely confusing system. U.S. debt is a matter of seeing who will give us a loan. This is done through treasury bonds and other debt instruments. Different folks buy our debt and give us a nice line of credit. Many libertarian-minded people focus on foreign debt holders, China in particular. That's interesting debt. That's an interesting uh, a creditor we have. But it doesn't even touch a majority of our debt. Lots of debt is held by the Social Security Retirement Fund in a bizarre accounting trick that the government does that I have trouble wrapping my head around. Increasingly, and especially this year, the Federal Reserve has financed a significant amount of that debt. The last two financial crises have made it totally necessary. The Federal Reserve is often known as the Bank of Last Resort. It is, well, I mean, this is my pejorative for it, but it is the head of a banking cartel, and it's really not a federal entity at all. The Federal Reserve's primary mission, its primary function, is to decide how much credit is available. Mind you, this is not credit to you, but to members of the cartel, to other banks. If you've ever been poor or hadn't had credit, you know how hard it is to find someone to loan money to you. You have to accept terms like high interest that would make Ebenezer Scrooge blush. But once creditors get their claws in you, they've got you. Some financial wizards say you should never borrow from family for this reason. The terms are unwritten, but they're strong. The government has been grateful to have the Fed buying our debt. The Fed creates the credit, and we use it. Without a buyer for our debt, it's impossible to spend that money. So we've been very thankful over the past few crises to have the Federal Reserve waiting there to finance spending. How much are they doing this? How much is the Federal Reserve doing this? You can find it out. It's about $80 billion of debt a month right now. My argument in this podcast is that when the federal debt is owned by, say, mutual funds, the Federal Reserve, banking cartel, or a foreign nation, the U.S. public gains unshakable obligations. A little bit like getting money from your family, right? As David Graeber explained in his book, Debt the First 5,000 Years, highly recommended, Japan's large holding of U.S. debt was not merely them providing credit to an empire hungry for money, it's also buying protection. 
By financing our overspending, Japan gets to enjoy military occupation by the United States and the occasional uh, V-2 Osprey crashes on Okinawa. But the point is that Japan gets protection. Japan gets economic protection, maybe in the form of uh, a market to sell new cars, Toyotas and Hondas and so on. Graber's line that has always stuck with me is that Japan's status as a creditor in some ways makes it a colony of the United States. As I said before, many people get upset about the Chinese having significant stake in U.S. debt, but it shouldn't be news that the Chinese have their own designs on world domination, which is probably why they're no longer buying our debt like they did in the past. To me, China's retreat from buying U.S. debt establishes that they are now a competitor. Before this, they bought protection, right? We set up factories overseas. We let U.S. companies operate over there. Now they don't need protection, so they don't buy our debt. And so increasingly, especially since the 2008 financial crisis and now the COVID economic crisis, which has yet to become a financial crisis, but will definitely become one because I don't see any other way out of it, the United States finds itself indebted to a large financial institution and a financial institutional network that makes up the banking cartel of the Federal Reserve. I'm hoping to do a whole podcast on the Fed someday. It requires a lot of study because, again, philosophy degree, not economics. But the Fed might be called a pact between the banking sector and the government. That pact is centered around stability. During the 18th and 19th centuries, the United States financial system had a lot of crashes and a lot of panics. They were commonplace. In 1907, the only thing that stopped a real financial panic was J.P. Morgan, the incredibly influential banker and industrialist who restored confidence in a flagging financial system by bailing out all the banks. Yes. All of them, he was that rich. People in the public were nervous that J.P. Morgan could bail out the entire financial system by himself and that something needed to be done about it. Congress thus passed the Federal Reserve Act of 1913 to create an independent central banking system that oversees private banking activity. The Federal Reserve's job is to make sure that panics and crashes don't happen in addition to their credit creation capacity. So they went from a single guy bailing out the system to chartering a banking bureaucracy to bail out the system, as my wife said. Hmm. Do you see the difference? Do you see the difference between a cartel and J.P. Morgan? I'm not sure I do. Seems like you traded one bank for a lot of banks. And clearly, the Federal Reserve has failed in the task of keeping those uh, panics and crashes away. They've used one of their tools to mitigate damage, namely being a creditor for federal government spending, They're increasingly our lifeline for programs like Paycheck Protection and the CARES Act and all that Pax Americana stuff, don't forget. They're our lifeline, the banking system. We're sinking without them. So there you have the picture of United States debt right now. Let's go back to those angry people throwing tea into the harbor. They looked at their wallets and found them exceedingly light due to the Crown's taxes. Representation, in their mind, was linked directly to the money being yanked out of their household. Taxation meant a deserved stake in government. If taxation means you get a say in government, what happens when your government is using the credit card instead of working with the taxpayer? What does that mean for representation? So in my opinion, representatives still need to answer to the taxpaying public, but today at a lesser degree than they ever have. The ones paying taxes get some representation but representative signing spending bills now also answer to creditors. Many libertarians worry about the U.S. defaulting on debt. I have a mortgage and I get it. 
You don't want to default because it means losing something and it means the creditor swoops in and meddles in your life. But I think that many libertarians fail to grasp that when it comes to the increasingly expensive maintenance of global empire, U.S. government representatives now may have made dealing with creditors an essential part of their job. Spending, when it happens, takes creditors into account. After all, why answer to unruly taxpayers? Taxpayers always try to get out of their bill. Though people who advocate for higher taxes will never admit it, everyone minimizes their tax bill. It's expensive to work for the government for a few months out of the year. And then, after paying our taxes, we complain about the services we're getting constantly. We turn on politicians. Some of us complain that the representative isn't telling the truth that this one or that one plans to rip us off. Others complain that the representative is encouraging racist or sexist behavior or that they're kowtowing to our enemies and so on. So let me put myself in the shoes of a politician. I have to find money for my ideas someplace. You can't raise taxes on citizens too much, otherwise the laugher curve comes into play. That's when your tax collection diminishes because taxes are so high that they stifle growth. So once people appear tapped out, I start having to go to the creditors. If I'm a representative, I start to get sick of you know dealing with these taxpayers. Why listen to this nonsense from the citizens? Isn't there someone else who can finance this empire? We've got to fight wars against desert terrorists or disease or perhaps an asteroid headed towards Earth or out-of-control nanoscale robots or pick your sci-fi scenario for the future. Why not turn to the central bank? It's a public-private entity, this Federal Reserve. It seems to have infinite money that it can create. Hey, it's a cartel of giant big banks. Those working in the Federal Reserve system or its membership can connect you to some of the wealthiest people on the planet. These people work for entities that, oh, wait, wait, they're bailed out by the federal government on a regular basis. Wait. Okay, so I'm no math whiz, right? So consider this rhetorical point. Let's say that your representative has to think about the taxpayer 80% of the time and the creditor 20% of the time. I use those numbers based on the rough proportion of revenue to debt that we talked about in fiscal year 20, right? $5 trillion in expenses, $4 trillion in revenue, $5 to $4. That 80-20 split means that in every working day of eight hours, the representative spends an hour and a half on the phone with the creditor. Maybe that's the banking cartel, maybe banks representing multinational concerns, foreign nations, mysterious bond jockeys buying up the debt. You, you get the idea. This, of course, assumes your representative works eight hours a day, which I'm pretty sure mine does not. Anyway, you can't convince me that creditors to the United States don't want something more than the 1% interest or whatever treasury securities are paying right now. That's like saying that the bank who gives you a loan just wants interest. No, they want a home inspection. They want you to maintain the place in good working order. They want the septic tank repaired. Yes, that was my bank in 2013. Creditors giving us a trillion dollars a year this year, two to three to four trillion, want assurances of the Pax Americana. They want the imperial protection racket to lean their way. These moneyed interests note that the empire controlling the seas and space is crucial to their success. They want to be best positioned to deal with the petrodollar. Institutions buying U.S. debt want access. They want favorable regulation. They want bureaucracy to work their way. Companies with pension funds invested in U.S. Treasuries want to get bailouts. Take the example the share of the eight-hour day of your representative even further. Remember that taxation equals representation, but only half of Americans pay income taxes. That means that representatives might only give their time to the portion of the population paying tax money. Why bother with the poorest Americans who don't pay any taxes at all? 
The system works for people who pay taxes to enable spending, so you keep the system running for them. So I'm a representative in a district where the biggest industry is, say, pharmaceutical, right? I'm going to help out the pharmaceutical industry because they pay the bills and they pay the people that pay the bills. Assuming you, a citizen, get one vote, you can now count on it being, for argument's sake, 80% of its original value. Maybe only 50% of its original value if you're not paying taxes into the system and you have an effective tax rate of 0%. The bottom line is this. Electing a representative still means getting a stake in your government's day-to-day business, just a partial one. You can throw tea into a harbor, but unless you're both paying taxes and being a creditor, nobody's going to care. The wealth talks. And this is obvious, right? But as long as the federal government has a say in how wealth is distributed, those with wealth will attempt to influence it. And that's the libertarian position by, by definition, right? Debt means attachment as well. With both presidential candidates in the 2020 race having promised to increase spending and help out more people with one thing or another, we'll increasingly find our representatives answering to someone else. All right, there's probably some economics geniuses and political science nerds in the audience screeching at me for oversimplifying things. Guilty, that's charged. I'm holding up my hand right now. Send your corrections. I'll read them on the air. But I think the basic point still stands. Financing government requires counterparties in the debt issuance process. Those counterparties will have demands, and they need to be met. Someone will ask me, why doesn't the U.S. just balance its goods and services on tax revenue? My answer is, that's a nice idea. Good for you. But get real. The answer is that governments throughout history have borrowed. In fact, the very government that the Tea Party was protesting prior to the American Revolution, the British Empire, was borrowing on its own. Yeah, remember the British Empire? Much like the United States currently, the British Empire ruled the theaters of war, most importantly the seas. English replaced French as the lingua franca eventually and British commerce became dominant on the globe. But with that ascent to empire status and for the British, they started to face wars. Nations borrow in order to have military superiority. It happens almost every time. There's few, if any, examples of nations borrowing at a massive scale to help their citizens grow, it seems to me. For the British Empire, that trade and military projection meant borrowing quite a bit of money. In the 1730s, before the Boston Tea Party, Britain had racked up huge debts during the South Sea bubble. Those debts were not settled until the 21st century. Debt added to that included the French and Indian War in the 60s, 1760s that is, fighting the American Revolution into the 1780s, continuing to expand the empire to world dominance during the Victorian era, all the way through to World War I and II. Borrowing never stopped. 200 years after a bunch of dudes dressed as Native Americans threw tea into a harbor, In the middle of the 20th century, post-World War II, Britain began dissolving its empire. The heyday had come to a close. India and Jamaica and all the other colonies went independent. And as the empire dissolved, the UK began trying to pay off debts handed down over many generations. Many generations. So who held those British debts? Well, that's a complicated question. Financial institutions, definitely. Pension funds, banks, financial advisors, landowners, foreign entities... The debt crisis that the uh, British Empire had racked up during its time and that came due in the 20th century, it, it got so bad in the 1970s that Britain had to go to the International Monetary Fund, IMF, big bank, right, big international bank, with their hat in their hand, asking for help with those debts. 300 years old, 300 years old these debts were. 
Upon getting the money to tie them over, the IMF put severe conditions on the loan. Government programs at home had to be cut because of debts outstanding from the back in those imperial times. And that's when austerity began, right? That's a cut in government spending on programs. Many see this IMF disaster as leading to the ascendance of Margaret Thatcher and her conservative policies. It suffices to say that these debts stick around. They fester. They hang on like a cancer that keeps metastasizing, getting treated, and then metastasizing again. Empire seems to have a shelf life and a debt cycle. You know how much we love cyclical history here at Tinderbox Podcast if you listen to Counted as Cast or, more importantly, Making of the Greatest Generation. Empires seem to rise on riches, overextend themselves financially and militarily, and then crumble under their own debt. What's wild is that these debts also stick around long after your empire has ceased to be. As the United States struggles with its own revenue problems, I'm reminded of how the British Empire raised taxes on tea to deal with its revenue problems, and yes, debt obligations. The British Empire sparked a revolution that led to the creation of a wholly new empire later because of their debt problems. In other words, empire begets empire. After the founding of the country, most of the founding fathers saw debt as a necessary component to the new nation, as well as a moral obligation. Chief among them was Alexander Hamilton. So here's Hamilton to tell you about why you need debt in an emergency. Quote, that exigencies, exigencies are expected to occur in the affairs of nations in which there will be a necessity for borrowing. That loans in times of public danger, especially from foreign war, are found an indispensable resource even to the wealthiest of them, and that in a country which, like this, is possessed of little active wealth, or in other words, little moneyed capital, the necessity for that resource must, in such emergencies, be proportionately urgent. And as on the one hand, the necessity for borrowing in particular emergencies cannot be doubted, so on the other, it is equally evident that to be able to borrow upon good terms, it is essential that the credit of a nation should be well established. End quote. It's interesting to see how he talks about the United States at the time being a poor country, poor enough that it needs the creditors. You have to wonder what Hamilton would think of the country now. A country, he thinks, should become a good debtor in order to secure better terms on future debt. But what if your debt climbs and climbs? What if emergencies and military catastrophes hit all at once? Well, your debt becomes that much harder to dismiss. Hamilton later goes on to say that there are a number of real benefits from taking on debt. So, quote, to justify and preserve the citizen's confidence, to promote the increasing respectability of the American name, to answer the calls of justice, to restore landed property to its due value, to furnish new resources, both to agriculture and commerce, to cement more closely the union of the states, to add to their security against foreign attack, to establish public order on the basis of an upright and liberal policy. These are the great and invaluable ends to be secured by a proper and adequate provision at the present period for the support of public credit, end quote. In other words, it sounds like Hamilton sees debt as being a cohesive civilizational glue. For him, obligations that run from government to private sector and back, and then between those in the private sector and between nations, are a way that society relies upon itself. When we are in debt to each other, he thinks, we owe each other something and are thus less likely to disagree with one another or become disagreeable. It's an idealism that Hamilton held on to about how debt will work. I mean, it's also kind of hard to read out loud. But anyway, what's clear is that the United States has now spent decades and centuries borrowing money during peacetime outside of emergencies. 
and the debt problems we face now have run into the realities of America being extended beyond its own borders, unable to care for its own people, and in a constant state of emergency. Add in a pandemic, and you have a country prepared to take on debt on very bad terms, from its own bankers, from its own banking cartel, from God knows who, which means your representatives will be working harder and harder for creditors and not the taxpayer. Well, what do you do? How do you get out of this? Well, as I pointed out in the British Empire example, time heals all wounds and all debt. Hundreds of years of time creates hundreds of years of inflation, and inflation eventually makes those debts that seemed so large seem small. You'd be inclined to let the empire go and say, screw it. But we know from the British example that debts are always, always paid sooner or later, or later than you think. Having a successful populace also heals the debt problem. More people with more jobs means more money to go around, means more revenue. If you find a new industry, some sci-fi stuff like asteroid mining or interdimensional arbitrage, you can grow your way out of debt. For example, astronomers have identified an asteroid that's been valued at $10,000 quadrillion because of the precious metals it contains. $10,000 quadrillion, um, well, like I said, I'm not very good at math. I'd be remiss to not mention people arguing that there's another way out of the empire debt cycle. There's a radical group out there pushing for a different macroeconomic order than that tax and debt model. It's the modern monetary theorist, which argues that governments can create as much money as they want in order to create jobs and achieve full employment. So government creates its own credit and then just uses it. So um, in other words, you get to issue yourself your own credit card. It's like that bizarre movie from the 90s, Blank Check. From Walt Disney Pictures, this morning, Preston Waters got something. Look on my bike! Get that check to your dad, he'll know what to do with it. That's going to change his life. Blank check. Yeah! Now, he's buying more stuff. You have a house. Meeting more women. Baby brother comes into his own. And stopping three crooks. I'm gonna get you, kid! From taking all of his money. Under modern monetary theory, if inflation becomes a problem, you just increase taxes. Economists in favor of modern monetary theory say that this would create the ability for a job guarantee. So the government always has a job for someone. So if the unemployment rate is 20%, the government charges its own credit card enough money to pay everybody. And if everything starts to uh, starts to be inflation, they'll just uh, tax the workers to pull the economy out of the inflation spiral. It's an interesting idea. The reason I wanted to tell you about modern monetary theory, though, is that there are heterodox theories of economics out there, and they call into question the nature of our debts. I think it's important if you're, you're going to get out of the cycle of debt that you start to think about some flexibility in understanding debt, whether it's modern monetary theory or some other form of debt relief. Uh, David Graeber prefers the Jubilee, which is the canceling of debts uh, as an interesting way to get out of this, this cycle. Well, there's got to be some way out of it beyond this to me, the destructive cycle of empire begetting empire. One last note from David Graeber. He points out in his book that throughout history, most people have been told that they're debtors by someone, a king, a bureaucrat, a priest. And I think it's worth asking ourselves as debt and its obligations swell in this empire whose decline is on the mind, what obligations we have to each other and what it means to owe something to the future. 
thanks for listening to this little meditation on debt and representation. It's kind of one of those things sloshing around in my mind for years, and it's good to get it onto paper. Maybe it's not profound to you, but it felt that way to me. Again, Pick Up Debt, The First 5,000 Years by David Graeber. It's a truly remarkable book by a self-declared anarchist. If you're interested in macroeconomics and how things work, um, I might recommend the blog Wolf Street by Wolf Richter. It's a great resource. It's on my dad's daily reading list, and now it's on mine too. And as we enter the next phase of American history, I hope all of you can settle your own debts out there in the tinderbox.